it's so weird too because our babies have barcodes. Okay, I'm curious though, I wanna to talk to our doctor and know like, okay, of the four boys, which boy do we choose? You know, like, and which one? We'll spin the wheel and we'll put a, a barcode on each side. Okay. <laughs> so that video stirred up some thoughts. Welcome back to the Loopcast, Catholic Vote's weekly rundown of all things faith, culture, and politics. Today, I'm joined by Erica and Josh. As always, it's Tom. So, this week was a crazy week, like most weeks. However, one thing really dominated the culture section of this faith, culture, and politics thing we do here. Uh, it started off with a YouTuber, uh, specifically a gay YouTuber, Shane Dawson. It also has a relation to Mike Pence, and it also relates to Anderson Cooper. Now. I'm going to play trivia here. What do all three of them have in common? I doubt you could guess it. It's IVF. So in vitro fertilization. It's a very sensitive topic and I want to do respect to it, but it's something that needs to be talked about. And there is a Catholic answer to this problem. Uh, so fertility is really personal, of course, um, but there's ways, uh, best practices, morality. There's also a way to really be kind and generous in this conversation. but uh, what's happening now is uh, in the culture, it's being almost treated, the word that comes to mind is barcodes. And we actually were given the inspiration for the thumbnail in this video by a video put up by Shane Dawson with his partner. He's legally uh, with a man and they did in vitro fertilization. So I'm going to run the clip here. I think it's going to be a really good table setter for our conversation today. I'm going to throw up. I'm so scared. <laughs> and four boys. Wow. That's a lot of boys. Wait, that is funny. Your, I wonder why. Your sperm made lots of boys. Wait. Wait. One, two, three. I have four girls. Four girls and two, two. boys. So we're opposite. Wow. Right? It's so weird too because our babies have barcodes. <laughs> I mean. I have two girls. You have four. So that's six. Yes. I have Four boys, you have two. So six. That's six. Yes. How is that even possible? That we, uh, now we have six boys and six girls. It's cheaper by the dozen, baby. <laughs> okay, I'm curious though. I want to talk to our doctor and know, like, okay, of the four boys, which boy do we choose? You know, like. I don't like playing God. I don't either. But no, I'm just saying, like, I wonder if there's like the biopsies or the lab results tell them we which to spin one. Spin the wheel and we'll put a, a barcode on each side. Okay. <laughs> So that video stirred up some thoughts from the internet. And I mean, it's people say points for honesty, but I'm just disgusted and I'm not going to be made to not feel disgusted. I, I hate it. And I just feel like so much about um, American life today uh, could really learn from Jurassic Park. You know, just because you can do it doesn't mean it's a great idea. You know, it's like... Uh, Science, science is really good at answering certain questions, but it doesn't fill in the blanks for you. And um, yeah. you really need to go, you know, like, hmm, we can make dinosaurs. Should we do that? That sounds fun. No, dude, don't open that Pandora's box. There used to be this uh, understanding that you wouldn't want to play too much with nature because you were humbled in, by it. But I think maybe it's a lifetime of, you know, consumer convenience and air conditioning that made us all feel like we can be masters of our own dominion. But we need a yeah. little bit more of that sensibility where this is not okay to play God like he basically acknowledged. And can, yeah. can we set the record straight before we get into this? I know there's controversy because some people have actually been conceived and, and are walking around now from IVF procedures. Absolutely, certainly. Erica, Erica, we did research on this. Can we set the distinction upon what where our issue lies or where the catholic church's issue lies with ibf right absolutely i would say we do want to approach the topic right like you said with compassion and respect because infertility is one of the most heart-rending difficult crosses that a couple can be asked to bear um even couples you know in sacramental marriages I, obviously the gay the gay men manufacturing children in petri dishes is sort of the extreme and the obvious um, iteration of using artificial reproductive technology. 
But I think it's really important to confront ourselves with that because in a way, their commentary there, it, it tells us a truth about what happens when even well-intentioned couples turn to artificial reproductive technology. But at the same time, like you said, Tom, there are thousands, tens of thousands of Americans walking around now who were conceived in this way in families that were built using this technology. Um, and I would just say to those families and those, if anyone's listening today, that moral critique of in vitro or artificial insemination, our, our moral critique of this practice and this process is in no way a critique of the human person, that every child once conceived is an irreplaceable, um, unique human person who is a child of God. And we can certainly say that there are bad ways to bring children into existence and still embrace that person's dignity. So I just want to put that out there before we well, go any that's further a great in point. the conversation. That's a yeah. great point because, you know, in the case of my wife, her parents actually were infertile. They couldn't have any children, so they adopted two children. Um, the case of my wife, she was created through um, a, a couple that committed adultery. They were they were not yet married. They were high school sweethearts or whatever, and they realized that this wasn't the time in their life to to try to raise a child. I'm glad they obviously chose life, and uh, an infertile couple was able to adopt her, and now she's the mother of six children. Uh, there's a natural way that this is supposed to play out. Like infertile couples have this opportunity then to adopt from, you know, in these circumstances. Does she have any less dignity because she was conceived through adultery? Of course not. I mean, she's got no. more dignity than I do. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is... Go Lori. Shout out to Lori. That's yeah. true. So the, the critique here is, yeah, like, do we want as a society to create children through Petri dishes? Obviously, this has been going on since 1978 mm -hmm. uh, when it all started. Um, I think it's a bad idea. Um, I, I think what, yeah, I think with this clip, watching it, the sort of gut-wrenching aspect of it, again, that's, it's good for us to confront because it makes it so clear is that um, human beings should not be manufactured, right? Human persons are not, we're not objects, we're not products that someone else has a right to have me. My parents didn't have a right to me, right? Just like I don't have a right to any of the children we've been blessed with, either those who were not born because they died in my womb or those who are here with us. It's not like I own them or I had a right to them. And the problem with artificial reproductive texts is that it separates the human child. It separates the, the making of a baby um, from the marital embrace, from the couple. Right. And that every yeah. child has a right to be conceived in their mother's womb, to All... grow in their mother and to be raised but with a loving mother and father. Right. So in real practical terms, each of those children that those two men were talking yeah. about in that video each of them is a child of God and should have dignity yeah, and respect. Correct. And it's not spinning a wheel to determine which one yeah. is allowed to survive. Right. It's those, just 12, those 12 children, the world will never see that child again, and it never has before, and it never will again. And so to just say, well, let's wait till the lab tests come back to see if we want this one. Like, but what does that mean? Does it mean you, like, if they're left-handed, you'll you'll just throw that embryo out. If they don't have blue eyes, you'll throw that one out. It's so reductive of human dignity. And as Catholics, it goes against everything we believe about right. and what, let's put it into perspective are. too, because I, I think the easiest way for Catholics, non-Catholics, really anyone to look at this from a moral or ethical perspective is through the fact that when you do an IVF procedure, you have multiple eggs uh, paired with sperm. So you have these embryos, right? And so a lot of times which become they will, new, which are new human lives, of course. Correct. I mean, so I know you said know that, but just new, helping right. people along they're, here. They're all individual souls that have now been created, and they let them grow. And sometimes when they grow, they'll do tests to see, well, does this one have undesirable characteristic X or un undesirable characteristic Y? And they will pick from which of those that actually are brought to full term, often through surrogacy, uh, really, the only way to see, obviously, or are put back within uh, the mother that maybe donated the egg. Uh, but in the case of um, same-sex marriages, like that has to happen. There's no way men can. Yeah, act you have pregnant. to have a surrogate, and that so, child will not grow up with its mother. That's correct. The and so, foregone when, conclusion. If you have twelve, in the case of Shane Dawson, uh, and they pick one, 
all those 11 are either going to be frozen or discarded or actually mm -hmm. tested on. So, or sometimes they get frozen, thawed, they die in the thawing process. You can see where it gets really messy. So we actually have some stats here. In 2019, according to the CDC, there were 330,773 330, uh, ART cycles reported. Uh, ART stands for Artificial Reproductive Technology Cycles. Uh, they, they resulted in 83,946 live infants, human lives. The remaining 246,827 children died. They were selectively aborted or frozen. Or they so, are frozen. Or they are frozen. So some of them are in stasis I, right now. Right. Correct. So I just don't know if people understand the sheer magnitude of that. So mm -hmm. for every child that comes from an IVF procedure, uh, three times that amount are in a lab or dead or... So, so that to me is the easiest way to translate. This may be a problem, right? So here, there's a lot of other additional problems too. I mean, because as you say, you know, a gay couple, these two men aren't obviously able to create, I mean, they have sperm, but they don't have a way to create the baby. So they need a surrogate. And so they're asking all these women to grow their baby as it were. And so you're seeing pressure on, um, surrogacy and a lot of times they're going to third world countries you know to quote rent a room and because sometimes some states have protections thankfully against this but more and more states are dropping that and opening the door to surrogacy and we we are you know the catholic church understands that this is another form of exploitation like you know for a woman to spend nine months with a child and then have to just give it up as if it was a business transaction. It's one thing if, oh... It's trafficking. It's human trafficking. Right. It's one yeah. thing if, you know, you made a mistake in the heat of the moment, you got pregnant, high school sweetheart, and then, oh gosh, you find a family that could do it. Like, happy ending, okay, that's good. But this, it's just so much more crass because it, it's commercialized, right? That natural process of being a mother, we just made it a commodity. And, oh, you know, we're paying you for the nine months, and, oh, you know, we didn't like it. And there was the battle, if you remember, just a few years ago, where, because of course, at, to implant these embryos, sometimes some die in the process. And so that is that lady in California where she, there's three babies in there and they're like, well, we don't want, you know, actually three children. So, you know, we need you to, what? We want you to kill a couple mm -hmm. of them. And so then there's right. this court fight. I mean, it's just, it gets really ugly. And one of the things I, I get frustrated with is that sometimes pro-life uh, people are compromised on this issue because uh, I understand the pain of the you know being infertile because as you, as I say I, I it was my my in laws but you get you know, it's it's a feeling of being compromised on this because like Mike Pence he was vice president under Donald Trump and he's quite open about the fact that he and Karen had problems with fertility and they used in vitro fertilization. And I just think that's a disaster. I think, again, you're playing with God. And he's a guy who, for the most part, has been really, really good on, on pro-life stuff, talking about how abortion's bad. But it's like, but Mike, don't you see how this is bad too? This is playing God. This is not what we're intended to do. So, Well, and I wanted to point out too, I mean, you mentioned adoption, Josh, as uh, you know, another way that couples can go. And it, no, it is not the same. It does not erase the pain of being unable to conceive your own natural child. Um, but I, I just wanted to put some numbers on the cost of artificial reproductive technology, just so we get a sense, because people will be like, oh, well, adoption is so expensive, and it's so expensive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but IVF is not exactly cheap either. So I looked this up, and one round of IVF uh, varies between 15000 and $30,000. And I was reading in Forbes Health, they were saying, if you have to pay less than $15,000, do not do it because it's the cheap version and you'll just get hurt. Well, most couples go through three to five cycles before even conceiving uh, their embryo, their children. So that's $45,000 to $75,000 to conceive on average. Then you're storing your children in deep freeze. That's about $600 a year. So you have to do um, pre-implantation genetic testing of the embryos. That's another thousand to six thousand dollars. And then surrogacy in California, where it's totally legal, a surrogacy center quotes couples one hundred and ninety thousand to two hundred and thirty thousand dollars to pay this woman to carry her child. And and to this day, I was looking this up as well. There are currently a million, over a million human children stored in deep freeze in the United States. 
And what do you do with them, right? The So contributing to this vast number of Americans who are unable to be brought to birth, um, it's a huge moral problem. It's a moral quandary. Uh, it's a sure. moral quandary. And it is for the left, too. It is for people who for are everyone. some of the loudest advocates of IVF. You go and you read them. This is a quote from um, Reprotech's chief executive, uh, Brenda Hazelrig, Brent Hazelrig, sorry. I have two children myself, living children. I just really can't imagine giving up embryos that are their siblings, my children, to someone else to raise. So even the farthest left advocates of this recognize that these frozen children are just there. And I wanted to bring up, too, in addition to adoption, the Catholic Church is on the forefront of scientific advances to help women in, who are struggling with infertility. The Catholic Church, because we have put these guardrails on this, yes, children are a blessing from God. This is not a good way to conceive them or to make babies. It's actually driven Catholic scientists and doctors. You think of the NFP uh, doctors at Creighton University. Well, they also developed this thing called NAPRO technology. And I'm going to leave multiple links in the show notes. So if you know someone struggling with infertility, who's struggling with the church teaching, please go and check these out. But, Nap but NAPRO actually provides um, therapeutic medical intervention to treat the problem in the woman, whereas IVF masks it. And couples can go through years and years of expensive IVF conceiving embryos who are frozen when they had something as, simply, as simple as ovarian cysts. They had something as simple as hormonal imbalance or polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is PICOS. Um, and again, Catholic doctors and scientists uh, and their allies throughout the country have developed natural treatments for these that are completely in line with our dignity as human persons. So it's not true that we're just saying, too bad, infertile couples, so sad. Not at all. Our Christian compassion drives this. That's what I want a mark of this podcast and also the loop as a whole to be is not just to be doom and gloom point out the problems, but mm -hmm. to show that there are real solutions and real ways to act. And I can speak from personal experience in, in my life, people that I know, NAPRO technology has miracle cured, not miracle because it's it's science, of course, but it's it's treating the root of the problem, which is what I think everyone would want to do if they were able to obviously do that. Um, and it's and it's caused people to be able to have children and and I just want to say too, I especially this week will be praying intentionally for anyone in our audience that is going through infertility right now. It is one of the hardest, most heartbreaking things I think really anyone, a human could go through. So I, I can, I really sympathize with you and I'll be praying intentionally for that. Um, and I hope you can check out in our show notes. We do have some links to uh, resources for you to be able to work and get to the root of those problems. And it's just, it, it's such a struggle. Like, it, and we're praying for you, but before we move on from this conversation, one thing that really disturbed me is if you recognize the name Shane Dawson, Shane Dawson actually uh, went through one of the most public cancellations, quote unquote, from YouTube. Uh, reason being, he made an apology video for things in his past. Now, the things that he said in his YouTube video included uh, using blackface, uh, using racial slurs, uh, but some of the things that he really kind of hid and the worst of it were that he... Uh, was engaged in in some real pedophilic talk in his content, um, some really gross actions with animals. Um, I'm not going to say exactly what all these are because it really makes my skin, skin crawl. Uh, you can look it up. It's out there. Um, the not problem the with of, this technology is the kind of guy well, you'd want to be a surrogate mother for. Bingo. Correct. So no. the prop, there, there's a real problem with this technology being utilized with people that don't like, I would not let Shane Dawson within 100 yards of my child. No way. <laughs> After seeing the things that he felt comfortable enough to put on the internet to, to boost his own content, uh, no way. Uh, I got... So I just want to put that out there. It opens up a lot of portals, and um, there's already right. been examples of abuse. So it's just not a good road to go down, and uh, I just would really like to encourage, because there's even people who are Catholic who don't really see problems with this, um, this is not something we really in good conscience can support. Um, that being said, I think we need a palate cleanser. Uh, and <laughs> yes, but I'm happy to give it. So uh, I came across two really interesting threads uh, on Twitter. The account is called Foundation Father, uh, M.A. Franklin. It is at Foundation Dads on Twitter. He created a thread uh, entitled 13 Things Every Father Must Say to His Daughter Over and Over. 
And then he also created an accompanying thread, 13 things every father must say to his son over and over. And I thought this was a good opportunity to pick three that really stuck out amongst uh, the 13. I encourage it. We'll have it in the show notes. Check out all of it. But it was such a good example. I think uh, if you don't relate to it as a parent, you can relate to it as a son or a daughter with your own father and then how you'd like to act, you know, with your future children potentially. Uh, so Erica, what, what really stuck out to you uh, in the sure. daughters and sons? Yeah. So in the daughters, uh, I, I have five daughters I'm blessed with here on earth. And so this one, I was like, oh, I should hand this to Todd. Here's what you should say. Um, the one that really stuck out to me at the top was, your words have the power of life and death. Use them wisely. And obviously that's a reference back to scripture, to Moses saying, you know, choose, I put before you life and death, therefore choose life. Um, but I think for, for young girls, and I see this, I have daughters, my oldest is almost 18, and then my youngest is three. And I have noticed with them, uh, and I, I don't want to be stereotypical, but women and girls just have this ability to be really cutting and uh, with their words. I mean, my son is more just like, I hate this. Like, this is stupid. He just, he just like says what he's thinking and moves on. Whereas the girls, I'll listen to them just like nagging and biting and blah, blah, blah. Um, but at the same time, I also see them having conversations where they're building each other up and it's so beautiful because they really are attentive to each other's strengths and weaknesses and they love each other. And so that, that sort of telling your daughter, look, your words are powerful. They matter. What you say matters. What you type on social media matters. Be wise about it. So I just, I really love that, especially for the girls, uh, pulled that one out. What did you yeah. like, Pogo? Oh man, for the sun part, I think the three that I pick kind of go hand in hand, but uh, the three big points were one, say I'm proud of you. Saying it at the right time can really make a world of difference. Two, get back up. And then three, sometimes losing a battle is worth fighting because it's the right thing to do. I think one of the best qualities that was instilled in me uh, by my father was uh, resiliency. Uh, I, I think a more... A less glamorous way to put it would be just be scrappiness. Uh, even in very little ways, I played a lot of basketball growing up. My dad was a basketball <laughs> coach. And I'm 5'8". I'm I never was very tall. Uh, and my Aww. grandparents still make fun of me because I would just run into the lane as fast as I could with reckless abandon and just get flung. <laughs> I would seriously just get flung across the floor. I was always on the ground. <laughs> and they, they accused me of, of flopping, but I, I genuinely probably weighed 50 pounds. So it wasn't, uh, <laughs> oh, little I don't think it was intentional. You know, I was just getting knocked around a lot. It, it really didn't matter how many times they got knocked back down. The, the real thing was getting, getting back up, not to paraphrase Rocky. But uh, I think those experiences in athletics and then reinforced by my dad uh, coaching me and telling me the right things, it really translated to a lot of things in my life. Like I'm gonna, I was going to face much bigger battles than getting knocked around by kids twice my size playing basketball. I didn't see it at the time, but in my adulthood and now in my career uh, and in my marriage, you know, there's, there's been so many times where the marquee of what I think makes me a man and like is a marquee of my manhood is the fact that I've picked challenges that were hard or I've been given challenges that were hard, but I didn't give up and I kept it going. And I think a lot of that was instilled by my father, which I'm very grateful for. And then the idea of picking battles that are worth losing. It's the idea of having principles. It really reminds me of uh, knights and nobility. Uh, there are just some things that are worth dying for. And martyrdom, of course, is the, the ultimate end of that. But being right is more important than being comfortable or being liked. Uh, and those things are what make great men. If you look at great men in history, they were all totally comfortable being hated uh, put being in tough situations, but they just put their principles above the challenges in front of them. I mean, I think of George Washington starting the country. Um, I think of Marcus Aurelius, one of the, the great emperors of Rome. Uh, men who are just in, inspirations to me. I think St. Thomas More, probably the greatest inspiration to me. I consider a personal patron. Uh, you know, I, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. Um, I think about that a lot. So, yeah. I hope I, hope I can give that to my son. Let's put it that way. What about you, Josh? I like the one where he said, you are my son. So if you think about the way the male mind works and the way the female mind works, these are tendencies, you know, they're not always this way. 
But for men, the goal, you know, it's goal oriented. It's achieving things. It's getting stuff. I have this fancy car. I have this great job. All this kind of stuff, right? And if you and if you tell your son, "You are my son. I value you more than any of this stuff." It, it it's like the greatest gift you can give him. So I totally resonate with that. That's awesome. I remember my dad saying similar things. So that that's like showing your boy what you treasure most in, in your life. And that's your family, who you love. Um, and then ultimately on that, what, what he recommended to tell the daughters, so perfect. Your household will need you. A cubicle farm does not. No, so this totally- I love that one too. <laughs> the reason why this connects is because again, the feminine genius, right? There's a masculine genius, feminine genius. The feminine genius here is, so like, you know, we're raising six kids and, you know, we're both, you know, Lori and I are both involved in nonprofit ministry, obviously. It's not like, you know, we're selling stocks here. And uh, at one point we're like, you know, we just got to help pay the bills. And Lori decides to start working at the hospital and she's doing it for a couple of years. And we finally get caught up, you know, where we're feeling better financially. And I'm like, okay, let's go on. Let's, you know, it's time for you to quit. And she goes, but the, I don't want to, I don't know. I mean, all my friends, my coworkers there, I feel like I'm letting them down because the hospital needs help and this, that. And I go, listen, the hospital's going to find a way to stay open. We need to take care of the home front. And it was, and she's like, oh my gosh, that's so right. You know, so it was the lesson that not only am I going to tell my daughters, but it, it resonated with my own wife. So, you know, I think that's an important, you know, perspective. I mean, I'm not against, you know, women working outside the home. Of course, she, my wife does. She runs uh, the Marriott Center Apostolate. So, All right. And this week, the Luke Cast stays on the ball. We are talking to Eric Baptist, Senior Counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom. He's actually on the case challenging the FDA's approval of abortion drug mifepristone. A really fascinating interview. Want to get right into it now. My guest today is Eric Baptist. Eric serves as a senior counsel, as senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, focusing on administrative litigation and regulatory advocacy. ADF is known for its defense of religious freedom in cases such as the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which we have covered here on Loopcast. Eric is an active member of the D.C. Bar and is admitted to practice before the U.S. Supreme Court and various federal courts of appeal. And contrary to what his name might suggest, Eric is a fellow Catholic. So, Eric, welcome to the program. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we jump into the case uh, that we're going to really focus on today, can you give our viewers a brief overview of the legal status and actual on-the-ground use right now of the abortion drug mifepristone, which is the first in a two-step chemical abortion. Is that correct? Correct, yes. So chemical abortion drugs are, are mifepristone and misoprostol. And the, the FDA's approval and the, the, the current regimen has evolved over time. But today where it stands is that a woman or a pregnant woman or a girl can obtain mifepristone without ever visiting a doctor um, in person. So she can get it through telehealth, sometimes online. And over 50% of all abortions are performed by chemical means these days. And therefore, it's, it's a very loosely regulated drug that the FDA has approved since the beginning of time. And the FDA no longer requires a doctor to actually be the one to prescribe this drug. It could be prescribed by a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner or somebody else, another healthcare provider. So a woman never has to go visit a doctor, doesn't actually have to see a doctor, doesn't have to be screened for any type of complications such as a, an ectopic pregnancy. And we, we could talk about that more, but it, very loosely, as of January, now your local CVS or Walgreens can start dispensing this drug. It used to be you have to come directly from the abortionist by mail or in person, but now just recently the Biden administration, its FDA, has permitted pharmacies to start selling these drugs to young women and girls. So this drug has been legal now for over 20 years or approved by the FDA for over 20 years. Do we have any long-term studies or indications on how this drug actually affects the mother who's taking it? Yes, we, we sometimes have to look outside the United States for determining whether this drug is safe or how unsafe it is because, and frankly, we just don't have the data here that's, that's robust and reliable here in the United States. One area where we look is Finland, because Finland has a national abortion registry, 
So it knows every woman and girl who's ever taken mifepristone for chemical abortion purposes. And it also has socialized, nationalized healthcare. So you can track the same woman in the healthcare system to identify if she has presented herself within 30 days to the emergency room for a complication associated with chemical abortion drugs. And there have been some seminal studies coming out of Finland that show that upwards of one in five women will have severe complications requiring subsequent medical intervention due to chemical abortion drugs. And it's also four times less safe than surgical abortion. And surgical abortion is not safe by itself, but it's, it's, it's chemical abortion is four times more dangerous. So we looked at that information to provide kind of a guidepost to see how unsafe this regimen here is in the United States. I mean, that is a shocking, those are shocking numbers. And so are there any current legal safeguards for the mother at this point to protect women? Is there, is there any limit on how this drug can be used? There are very few limits. There's no age restriction or minimum. So any girl of any age, a 13-year-old girl, 15-year-old girl can obtain these drugs without parental consent, without uh, seeing a doctor or a medical professional and get these, and, and without any medical supervision. This essentially induces labor and delivery. And Women are being advised by the abortion industry to do this in your own bathroom, in a hotel room, in, the, in your dorm room, without any medical supervision, sometimes without any support. And inducing labor and delivery of a baby upwards of 10 weeks, sometimes even longer, is highly dangerous. And it's also just traumatic in many ways for the woman to go through as well. There are very few limitations or restrictions uh, associated left, but it's basically paperwork for the the prescriber to go through with the drug manufacturer, for the pharmacy now to ensure that whoever's calling them is actually certified to dispense these drugs or prescribe these drugs. And finally, for the, the woman to sign a patient agreement form, purportedly to give informed consent that she understands the dangers of these drugs and signs off on them. Unfortunately, the FDA has minimized the, the dangers of these drugs and the potential complications such that this patient agreement is sometimes not as robust as it should be. And the woman frankly, can't give informed consent because there's no inform information to inform that consent. So there are a few protections remaining on the board. Um, some pro-abortion states are seeking to remove those few basic rest restrictions remaining. But as of now, there are those re restrictions remaining, which are very minimal in our eyes. Okay, so let's dig into the case now. Um, just a little background for the viewers. Uh, last November, November 2022, the Alliance Defending Freedom filed a federal lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas in Amarillo uh, against the U.S. FDA on behalf of the Alliance of Hippocratic Medicine and the Catholic Medical Association, among others, and in a group of others. So what exactly did your suit challenge, and how were you able to bring it? Why Amarillo, Texas? Just share with us a little bit there. We are putting everything that the FDA has done to approve and deregulate chemical abortion drugs before the court. And I'm going to give you a little history of what happened over the years that the FDA did that's subject to our litigation, if you don't mind, and humor us. Um, <laughs> people may have heard of... I love history. <laughs> people may have heard about <laughs> mifepristone in another form. I, I kind of came of age in the 1980s and 1990s, and we heard this drug from France called RU486. And that's mifepristone, but that was the name it was given in France. There was talk about bringing it to the United States in the early 1990s. And finally, when President Bill Clinton assumed office, on his second full day in office, he directed his cabinet to find ways to bring RU486, or mifepristone, into the United States. And that's exactly what they did. First, they had to strong arm the French manufacturer who wanted no part of the United States market to donate for free the U.S. rights to its drug, RU486, or mifepristone, to an entity known as the Population Council. Population Council, as you might guess, is actually interested in population control. So they got rice to this drug, and then what they submitted a new drug application with the FDA. The FDA worked hand-in-hand -hand with the Population Council to get this drug approved. Because even then, the FDA recognized the dangers inherently associated with these drugs, the FDA wanted to put some post-approval restrictions on the distribution of this drug, and appropriately so. But to do so, they had to use its fast-track approval authority. And that authority was very limited. And initially, it was intended to help AIDS patients and cancer patients receive life saving and life-affirming drugs. Here, what the FDA had to do was call pregnancy an illness and then argue that chemical abortion drugs provide a meaningful therapeutic benefit to women and girls who take them. Those are simply false statements, and we're presented that to the court. But in the year 2000, the last year of the Clinton administration, maybe a legacy item, the Clinton administration's FDA approved chemical abortion drugs for use in the United States. 
And then nothing really happened from the FDA's perspective until 2016, in the last year of the Obama administration. Again, was it a legacy issue or an election year issue? Who knows? But politics is always a theme in this case. The Obama administration did a wholesale change to the regimen where they now expanded the gestational age of the baby for which a woman could have a chemical abortion from seven weeks to 10 weeks. And during that time period, a baby more than doubles in size. It has fingers and limbs. It can move its face. It is a, it's, obviously, it's a human being, but it's even more traumatic for a woman from when she has to self-administer her own abortion in her bathroom by herself. And we, we have reports of women saying, I gave birth to my baby. I had no idea to expect this because the other side, the abortion industry tells me it's just a clump of cells. You won't even recognize it. And then a baby coming out, sometimes with a beating heart, is so traumatic to a woman. But the FDA did that and said, you can, you can give labor and delivery to your own baby at 10 weeks, sometimes even longer, because they get the gestational age wrong um, in your own home without any medical supervision. They also no longer required a doctor. I mentioned this earlier. No longer required a doctor to see a woman anymore. It could be just any healthcare provider. And finally, they took away adverse event reporting by the abortionist. No longer they said you need to report non-fatal adverse events to the FDA. You only have to report deaths to the FDA. And you don't have to report them directly to the FDA. You just need to give it to those chemical abortion manufacturers and presume they'll give it to the FDA. So that happened in 2016. Oh and goodness. then in 2021, the Biden administration went full force into chemical abortion and said, we're no longer even going to require a woman to see a doctor at all. And I should, I should go back to the Obama administration. In 2016, the Obama administration said, at first, the Clinton administration required three doctor visits on day one to get the first drug, on day three to get the second drug, and on day 14 to ensure there were no fetal parts remaining inside the woman or no other complications associated with a chemical abortion. The Obama administration said, we don't need to have three doctor's visits anymore, in-person office visits. You only need to have one. So here are the two drugs. Go home. And if you have any complications, go to your local emergency room and they'll take care of you. And then the Biden administration came in and said, you know what? You don't even need to see a doctor. You know, through telehealth or other means, you can get these drugs without ever being screened in person by a doctor. And that to us is dangerous, reckless, and frankly illegal. Because if a woman is not meeting with a medical provider, whether it's a doctor or a nurse practitioner, to determine whether to confirm she's pregnant, to determine her gestational age within the, the legal limits that the FDA has prescribed, or sometimes longer, you need to have an ultrasound and an in-person examination. And finally, to ensure she doesn't have an ectopic pregnancy, which is a life-threatening condition that occurs in one in 50 pregnancies. And if that's not screened for properly, a woman could have faced death in a life-threatening situation. We've seen women die because of ectopic pregnancies, taking mifepristone or RE46, and, and, and having life-threatening bleeding and dying. Because the symptoms of taking mifepristone are the same as an ectopic pregnancy. So if you are not screened for ectopic pregnancy and you take mifepristone, and show, show signs of severe pain and bleeding. An abortionist will tell you that's perfectly fine. We expect you to be in pain and have severe bleeding, but it could have been an ectopic pregnancy. And a lot of times that's what has occurred and women have presented themselves to emergency rooms and ultimately sometimes died because of that. And the Biden administration says, you no longer have to see a doctor, you can go ahead and, and do it. So, so everything that I just described is subject to our lawsuit because we think the approval was illegal for many reasons. And the, the stripping away of basic protections for women and girls in the last six years or so have been really traumatic and has escalated the amount of women presenting themselves to the emergency rooms across this country. Wow. So NPR, just to play devil's advocate a little and like, what's the other, what's the other media outlet? What are the other media outlets saying? So NPR has described the case as quote, challenging the FDA's approval for more than 20 years of the abortion drug, end quote. And that's sort of implying, right, that the safety of the drug is settled science, that we settled this 20 years ago. So the question, of course, is why bring the lawsuit now, so many years after the FDA told us the drug is safe? So why did you wait 20 years? I think it's a fair question to ask, why did you have to wait two decades to file a lawsuit? But hopefully, fairly, they, they give our answer to that because the FDA has a requirement that the courts have followed a lot of the times that says you need to, before you go to court to file a challenge against the FDA over a new drug approval, which would have been in this case, you need to file a challenge with the FDA first. You need to file what they call a citizen petition challenging the approval. That is exactly what our clients did in 2002. They filed a robust 90 plus page citizen petition arguing with the FDA that its approval was illegal and unscientific 
and therefore should be taken off, then this drug should be taken off the marketplace. What the FDA did by its regulations is supposed to respond within six months. But in this case, the FDA stonewalled our clients and evaded responsibility for 16 years. So our clients patiently waited for the FDA to respond until March of 2016. And then on, in March of 2016, the FDA denied our client's petition. But the FDA didn't stop there. They strategically timed that denial to go with the 2016, what we call the major changes to the abortion regimen that I just outlined. They did that on the same day. So our clients went back and said, okay, we're filing a new citizen petition challenging these wholesale changes to the drug regimen. And that's exactly what they did. And the FDA sat on that petition for a combined for a total of two and a half years. So combined 16 and a half years, our clients have been stonewalled by the FDA. And that denial, last denial, occurred in December of 2021. And we filed our lawsuit suit shortly thereafter. So this is the first time that, the, that our clients have been able to bring their case to a court and present to the court the entirety of what the FDA did over the course of the last two decades to harm women and girls by approving this dangerous drug regimen and then taking away basic protections for women and girls who do take these drugs. So we're happy to be in court now, but it's the FDA's own stonewalling and delay tactics that resulted in our not being able to bring this case until now. So tell me a little bit about the Amarillo, Texas connection, because I know that I've had people ask on for Loopcast and send in emails and say, why is this happening in Texas? Why not in Washington, D.C., where everyone associates the FDA with D.C.? Well, Congress has empowered the American public to sue federal agencies where the American public resides, works, and where they're injured. And that's exactly what we did here. We don't have to go inside the beltway to sue a federal bureaucracy because Congress recognized the American public should be empowered to, to sue the government where the government has enacted its arms. And that's what we did here by suing in Texas, because we have two plaintiffs based in Texas, one, an individual doctor who has recently treated a woman for severe complications associated with chemical abortion drugs. She was in the Amarillo area, went to New Mexico to obtain the drugs, came back to Amarillo, and then proceeded to have severe bleeding and hemorrhaging and almost died in but, but for the intervention of our Amarillo-based doctor, saved her life. And that's truly important here because our doctor did not have to come to Maryland or Washington, D.C., somewhere inside the Beltway to sue the FDA over these harms because he's entitled to bring that case where he resides. We also have a medical association that represents a lot of other medical associations, religious organizations as well, to, that's based in the Amarillo area. And so they have been harmed as well because they represent these organizations who have been filing these citizen petitions, doing their own studies that the FDA fails to do to determine and find that these, these drugs are not safe. And so we have many reasons to be in Texas, but that is one of the main reasons to be in Texas is because the co these Congress has empowered our clients to, to file in Texas where they were harmed. I will note that ADF files lawsuits. I work for Alliance Spending Freedom. We file lawsuits across this country from California to New York. We go wherever our clients take us. And here our clients took us to Amarillo, Texas. And that's exactly why we're there today. So I won't ask you to speculate about what the possible outcomes are, what the outcome is of the case. But the again, I was trolling the, uh, the mainstream media, legacy media establishment there. And I did see several um, quotes from senior counsels at other firms, such as Jenny Ma, senior counsel for Center for Reproductive Rights. And she was uh, explaining that this case is a threat to women's health and so-called reproductive freedoms um, because it could, the outcome of this case, should the judge rule in favor of ADF and its clients, that this would be a nationwide ban on medication abortion and she said it would have a greater impact than Dobbs. Is that true? And what could be the ramifications of this case? I, I, I won't go so far to make those statements about the ramifications of this case, but we are asking the court to set aside the FDA's approvals of these dangerous drugs for chemical abortion purposes. I should have started off saying mifepristone and misoprostol are both used for benign purposes. Misoprostol is used on label to treat gastric ulcers, but off label, a lot of doctors use it to induce labor and delivery. People and patients who rely on that drug for those purposes will not be impeded because our lawsuit does not seek to take away that approval. The same with mifepristone. It's used to treat Cushing's disease. Our lawsuit does not go after the approval for its use in Cushing's disease. So folks who rely on mifepristone and misoprostol for those uses 
will continue to have their drug available to them because they're made by different manufacturers and they're approved under different uh, uh, actions by the FDA. So I put that out there, but we are asking the court to set aside the approval of mifepristone and misoprostol to the degree the FDA has approved both drugs for chemical abortion purposes. And so it's, 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 it's an ambitious loss in the sense that we're asking the court to do this, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's a reasonable one because the FDA from the beginning to the end has failed to follow the plain requirements of the law. And that's important to raise with people because we're not second guessing the medical judgment or scientific judgment of a federal bureaucracy. We're saying when Congress empowered the FDA to protect America from dangerous drugs, the FDA failed to live up to its obligations and the, the directions that Congress gave it to do when evaluating to prove or reject a new drug application. And in this context, the, the FDA was directed and required by Congress to, to review and analyze a new drug under the conditions of use per the, the proposed label. And what that means is under the labeled use as directed by the label. The FDA has never had in the t over 20 years of this drug required or relied on a study that actually evaluated the approved chemical drug regimen. It, those studies that the FDA has relied on from the initial clinical investigations to other studies performed by frankly, the abortion industry, all have protections that are not embedded in the labeled use. And the biggest one are ultrasounds. Um, the clinical investigations in the 1990s, every woman had not just one, but two ultrasounds. An ultrasound to determine gestational age and identify ectopic pregnancies at the beginning of a chemical abortion, and then an ultrasound at the end to ensure she had no fetal parts remaining or other pregnancy tissue inside of her that will obviously lead to life-threatening conditions. The FDA's approved regimen does not require an ultrasound. So all these studies that include the ultrasounds are irrelevant to, to this, this discourse and the FDA's actions, but that's what the FDA has approved. So we're just asking the court to hold the FDA accountable and to comply with the law that it was given when it was empowered to serve as the nation's gatekeeper to the drugs in the United States. Well, and just to back up a little bit and return to the question of the FDA, I think you said it was 2016, correct me if I'm misremembering, but 2016 suppressing it seems like they were suppressing or saying we don't we no longer need to report adverse effects <clears throat> or deaths um and it seems like that that request alone was suppressing information that that should you know if we're really thinking about the welfare of women and scientific accuracy and medical responsibility that why would we suppress any information about the outcome of a yeah, drug yeah, accurate? with that decision, the FDA essentially said it wanted to be willfully ignorant about the consequences of its yeah. changes in 2016. It's just, that's stunning it, to me. Hashtag science. <laughs> well, what, what's even more stunning, I have to just interject here, is that, yes, they got rid of those adverse event reports. And I, I will note that it, it was an inherently flawed system from the beginning because it only required the manufacturer and the abortionist to report adverse events. But what my clients will tell you is that most of the time the abortions have because the FDA has absolved the abortionists to treat women for complications, most of the women who have severe complications requiring subsequent medical intervention go to the emergency rooms, go to their other doctors. And yeah. that's what our doctors end up treating. But our doctors in the emergency room are not legally required by the FDA to report any of these adverse events. Some of them do voluntarily. Again, they're at the end of their 12-hour shift, they have to spend upwards of two hours to submit an adverse event report. And that's even if they understand the system and even if the system re accepts it. Sometimes they get rejected. So it's a frustrating process because sometimes emergency room doctors don't know about the adverse event reporting requirements or just the possibility of doing it. Some of them just don't have the time to do it. And even when they do take the time to do it, it takes them a long time to do it. And sometimes they still get rejected by the, by the, the, the system. So it's an inherently flawed system. But what I find even more stunning is when in 2021, when the Biden FDA decided to remove the in-person dispensing of mifepristone, essentially permitting and authorizing mail order abortions, do it yourself at home without ever seeing a doctor. The FDA explicitly relied on the adverse event reports and said, well, we don't have many adverse event reports, so we think this, this drug is fine, so we're gonna, we don't need to have you see a, a doctor. But at the end of the day, you got rid of the reporting requirements, the few that were even there. So, right, how, they did it so themselves. how can you actually re rely on it? It was just audacious for them to do, and frankly illegal, and that's what we presented to the court as well. Oh, my. So the clocks all struck 13 o'clock. Very 1984. Do, can you think of any, are you aware of any other drug regimen or procedure for which the FDA has 
suppressed or just stopped collecting adverse effect reports. I am not aware of that, but I, I can't say that they hasn't they mm -hmm. haven't done it. But everything what I've seen about the history of this drug approval and the removal of the basic protection for women and girls who do take these drugs, if this is not business as usual, the FDA, everything seems to be politicized, prioritizing politics over science. And so this is just something atypical, I hope, you know, that's you know, the FDA just doesn't have the science to back it up. They did. They had to call pregnancy and illness to get this approved. Everything just reeks of yeah. impropriety and illegality, and that's again why we're in court today. Right. Well, it's it's absolutely disgusting, disgusting disregard for women and certainly for the infants. Um, I was looking up. I think it's a seventy-five to eighty percent effectiveness rate in actually killing the child. So, not to forget the baby, who certainly um, their safety is no one's concern when it comes to this. But thank you so much, Eric, for, for your insight today, your, your articulate uh, discussion of what the case means. And we are all eagerly awaiting the ruling um, and what it will mean for our country. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate being here. All right, back from the interview now. Uh, we have a lightning round. Josh, we want a quick explainer on something important that happened with former football coach, now senator from Alabama, Tommy Tuberville. The Defense Department has gone full-blown abortion activism, not just activism, aiding and abetting the murdering of children. What they're doing is they're providing all these, um, the, the Secretary of Defense issued three different memorandum and directives that, that made sure that the Defense Department would spend our taxpayer dollars to allow women in the military to go be transported to states where they could um, abort their children. It is absolutely horrible, totally go against uh, federal law. So, yeah. And uh, and what's going on right now, it's absolute scandal. And so Senator Tuberville has stood up and said, I'm going to place a hold on any appointments before the United States Senate to anyone to the, the par entire Department of Defense. And that means anything. So like if someone is going to go from, you know, one star to two star or move up to, you know, because a lot of those approvals need to be done at the United States Senate level. And he's putting a hold on all of them until the, the Biden administration lets go of this death grip they have. And uh, I applaud him for it. One senator can do that, that can place a hold on all these things. And we, what we need right now is to shout out from the rooftops and say, thank you, Senator Tarot, for doing this and get other uh, Republicans on board. You know, talk, call your senators and say, hey, are you supporting Coach on this one? He's awesome. Let's get uh, let's get a whole chorus going here of of, of Republican senators and pro life senators uh, backing him up on this because uh, we need we need a, a united front on this. And you know, Mitch McConnell is kind of like uh, he doesn't like playing these kind of games with the Defense Department or the Homeland Security because that's completely vital to American you know security. I understand that, but you know what's also vital that we stop killing our children. So it's good mm -hmm. that the, the, it. the senator from Alabama is taking a strong stance and Catholic vote is backing him up on this. Yeah, on the flip side, too, of we should support him and, and applaud him in this effort, I think that means we all should hold our senators to higher standards, right? All it takes is one senator to have a, this much influence over a real problem that we have. And so, yes, I applaud him. And also, hey, Look at your guy. Like, why aren't you doing the same thing? All senators should be doing this if you're truly pro-life. So, yeah, we need to hold our senators to a higher standard. And thank you to Senator Tuberville for setting the standard on this one, really. I mean, one man standing on the hill. Yeah, and I would just encourage everyone, if you're not subscribed to The Loop, make sure you are, because we're going to be following this story in the coming weeks to let you know who's signing on, who's not, and how to contact your representatives on this particular Topic. So make sure you're watching The Loop for Tuberville updates. So we move into the Twilight Zone here. Uh, Erica, you go first. Yeah, this was a fun one. I decided to troll Bill Maher this weekend, and I was not disappointed. Bill Maher, for those of you who don't remember, is a sometime erstwhile comedian, and he's sort of become an icon of leftists who are slowly in their reaction against wokeism swinging right. So he had as his guest this weekend, uh, Russell, oh my gosh. Russell just, Brand. Thank you. Oh He's gosh. a king. I love Russell Back Brand. Back at it. Okay, Russell Brand's awesome. 
So we had Russell Brand, who I I sort of just I think he's great too. And then he also had on the same round table Bernie Sanders, the uh, Bernie Sanders from Vermont, the Less state, cool. you know, just next to New Hampshire. More of a Russell Brand guy myself. Yeah, yeah. Bernie Sanders not as cool as Russell Brand, um, but I was really uh, excited to see that it turns out the Biden administration has now gone to the left, even of Bernie Sanders. And here's here's the telling quote. So Bill Maher turns to Bernie Sanders and says, you know, there's been a lot of discussion uh, in the in political jargon lately about this difference between equity and equality. And everyone knows, like the Biden administration, it's equity, 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 equity. So he turns to Bernie Sanders and says, Bernie, can you explain to us the difference between equity and equality? And Bernie goes, no, I really can't at all. So Bill Maher defines it for him. He says, okay, well, equality is like equality of opportunity. Equity is guaranteeing equality of outcome. So it's making sure that everyone gets the same miserable pittance from the government or something and reparations and all that. And Bernie Sanders says, oh, yeah, yeah. And so Bill says, well, where do you fall? Are you equity or equality? And Bernie Sanders, without missing a beat, goes, oh, I'm equality. Uh-oh. So, which puts Bernie Sanders <laughs> Squarely on the right of the Biden administration, a day we thought we would never see. Josh, you probably knew you, it was coming, but um, it was just an iconic moment for me. Culturally. I guess I'm surprised that Bernie Sanders, who went on a honeymoon to Soviet Union, couldn't figure out the difference between equity and equality. I would have thought that he would have picked old, that one man. up. I mean, he was traveling yeah. between his three houses. I think he, he might have lost confused. that on his private jet. Yeah, he got in a little, you know, the controversy the other day when he was. Uh, someone's like, well, now, wait a minute now. You're talking about all this socialism stuff and how capitalism is evil, and you're, you're, you're saying this in front of an audience of people where you're charging them like $46 a ticket to go see you talk about how bad capitalism is? I mean, yep, sounds like a good it's gig. It's, yeah. like, it's like yep. AOC selling the tax of the rich sweatshirts for like 300 bucks or whatever she sells them for. Some crazy. But you didn't, even, you didn't even bring up my favorite part of that episode was when Russell oh, yeah. Brand came on. So- you know, I'm a Rogan bro. I appreciate Joe Rogan and what he does for journalism. Joe, uh, Russell Brand went on Joe Rogan as well. Uh, and they had a conversation about what CNN did to Joe Rogan during COVID, which was malign him as a oh, guy who awful. takes horse dewormer to treat himself getting coronavirus. And of course, Joe Rogan recovers in like two days, like record time, way faster than everyone else. And they asked him what he did. He said, well, I took ivermectin. It's this drug that's been available over-the-counter for many years, it's inexpensive, and the government actually went on an uh, orchestrated campaign to take ivermectin off the, the market and actually malign people that were taking it. Um, don't talk to me about why. Uh, I think it has to do with money, if I had to guess, uh, in the pharmaceutical complexes here in America. That being said, uh, Russell went on and was challenged, you know, hey, in what ways... Uh, is misinformation. What are you talking about? This narratives and misinformation. Like, when did you see that? And he's like, oh, well, when they called Joe Rogan an idiot and crazy for taking horse dewormer, which they called CNN themselves called horse dewormer. And they actually changed the tint of Joe Rogan's skin when they, they played a video of him to make him appear more sickly. So for anyone that is of any bend that thinks that there's not manipulation and narratives going on uh, from any mainstream media at this point, crazy russell it, it took russell brand having to come on a show and say it i know to yeah. maybe smash that for people but yeah russell brand he's the man he's doing a ton of really good inter independent journalism uh which i really appreciate i have to say i'm very surprised and pleasantly surprised at that totally for russell brand it is Best speaking part about, of changing yeah, people's like skin tone tom are you saying that you can like do something with the youtube here to make us all look better if yeah, you I can, can do that I to can, joe rogan i mean come on like i, I do it to josh every week why, why do you think josh <laughs> looks so good hey josh you're looking very <laughs> pink this week it's all uh <laughs> hollywood tricks i got going That's on right. over here uh josh you might be purple during this this week's recording who knows depends on how uh, well you treat me i do like the vikings <laughs> purple people eaters so, uh, yeah, I'm going to slide into my Twilight Zone here. Uh, man, this one was just, it just doesn't get better than this. So I actually have a video I'd like to show you guys. So there was a, uh, a attack uh, is the way that I would describe it. Uh, MSNBC described it as foolishness. But, um, 
yeah, we'll domestic see what you guys... terror incident. Yeah, I haven't seen well, this yet. I'm excited. We'll, we'll see what you guys Show think me. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They say that they stormed what is going to be a training facility for police Sunday through three bricks, through bricks, rocks, fireworks, and Molotov cocktails at police officers, setting fire to construction equipment and launching rounds of commercial-grade fireworks. This is by no means their first clash with police. This has been going on for months. In January, one of them was killed after police say they shot at them and then police shot back. They're fighting to save the woods that the police training center would replace, but also saying they're trying to keep police from militarizing. This has put local civil rights groups in a strange position where they agree. That is a strange oh position. Gosh. To be in. That is a strange position. That's so, a mild way of putting it. That was an attack on an Atlanta police training center. Uh, so basically what those people did was they pretended to be protesters and then all got dressed up in black and stormed the area with Molotov cocktails, with bricks, with fireworks, started throwing them at police, burning their, their vehicles and equipment. Um, so uh, some might consider that domestic terrorism. I feel like that might be a fair charge. I w would would, would you guys be that. in agreement? Yeah, I think. I'm going with term. domestic terrorism. I mean, it's a little more fireworky than J6, January 6th was right. Yeah, so um, so there was yeah. a curious mugshot uh, that showed up uh, after this, and it turns out uh, a staff attorney named, uh, it's another Tom, which is kind of sad because it's just, you know, oh, one or okay. Tom's to stay up, but his name is Tom Jurgens, and he is a staff attorney for the Southern Poverty Law Center. And if you've ever heard of the Southern Poverty Law Center, one of their favorite activities is calling Christians and other Christian groups hate groups, labeling conservatives as hate groups, Christians as hate groups. That's kind of their thing. And for those that think, well, this is some fringe group, no, the U.S. government uses the Southern Poverty Law Center. Actually, they use the Southern Poverty Law Center to label the rad trad Catholics that we talked about that the FBI mm -hmm. was using to attack them. Yep. So it they turns said, out- yes, they, they, they cited this group, yep. So an actual attorney at the SLPC is engaging in domestic terrorism caught in 4K. And what are we doing here? I, like, this was just a moment where I was like, am I, is this a simulation? Like, it's, uh, uh, the yeah. guy looks like an Abercrombie and <laughs> Fitch model gone, gone bad. Like, it looked like if I typed into ChatGBT. <laughs> He's not that good looking. Abercrombie and <laughs> Fitch lawyer. Bam. This is his LinkedIn profile. It's like, boom. And then oh it looks so good in the mugshot, but yeah, it's a tough look for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Like if, if Josh, if you ran down the street and you started throwing bombs into a building, I think the media would have come back and been, mm, Josh Mercer, Catholic vote employee, kind mm -hmm. of a bad, I don't know. Well, or if our friend well, Eric you know. Baptist, who we just interviewed, if ADF staff lawyers were throwing <laughs> Molotov cocktails. At abortion facilities, like this would be all over the top but stories. Yeah, I didn't even know this had happened until yesterday. The Southern Poverty, Southern Poverty, Southern Poverty Law Center. Poverty laws is evil. Here's the thing: they put out this list talking about all these groups, and they and they smeared a lot of good pro-family, pro-marriage groups by by throwing them in the same list as white supremacy groups. You know if. Racial plan. groups, right. neo-Nazi groups, mm -hmm. lumped them all together like they're just a different variety of them and talked about how evil they were and how horrible they were. And so some whack job read, you know, saw this. And here's the thing. I remember when I went to Washington, D.C., and I, the Family Research Council, they were in kind of a rough part of town, and they mm -hmm. had a security guard there. I'm like, I mean, really? You think someone's going to come in here and cause a problem? I mean, I just thought I was a little bit overdone. Whatever. Well, no, two, three years after that, some psycho, re, you know, influenced by the Southern Poverty Law Center came in with a gun and started shooting it up. And that life, uh, that security guard saved lives that day. He was injured. Uh -huh. um, oh my but gosh. my friend Tom McCluskey, who now works for us at Catholic Vote, was there. And Tom, you know, was very thankful that that guard was heroic that day. And yeah, Tom is upset about the r radical actions of the Southern Poverty Law Center, how reckless and evil that they smear good people. The, the mainstream media only wants to talk about the right that got out of hand on January 6th, but they never want to talk about all these other circumstances where militant left-wing crazies go nuts with violence. And we're calling them out on it. So I applaud Forever. you for that, Tom.
Thank um, you. I got my my uh, Twilight Zone is. Um, look, I mean, I like to watch TV all the time. It seems like every crime show has got to do this. They got to do a, an episode where oh, the priest was told something in the confessional, but he can't say it. It becomes this big story. You know, I almost don't get mad at it because it's like, it is kind of an interesting thing. Like, it is a tied, look, brother, I can't tell you anything. Yeah. Um, and so this is I going- I confess it's a great movie, right. Right, yeah. so um, over in Vermont, they're, they're considering legislation, the lawmakers there, to break the seal of confession. If there's, and the, the way the government is suggesting is like, well, okay, if someone admits to harming, sexually harming a child or physically harming a child, some sort of abuse, then the priest is obligated to break the seal of confession. Now, Bishop Christopher Coyne, this is not common, obviously, but he, I applaud him for this as a bishop. So that's obviously the Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone is the government trying to break this seal of confession. I understand, like, just because they have a good reason in their mind, too, doesn't mean they should do that. The bishop got up there, and I want to applaud him for testifying. Okay, not just writing a press release, not just, you know, putting something in a bulletin, but showing up and telling them you can't do this. It's a violation of our freedoms. You know, this is an absolute violation of our freedom. And so I applaud him for doing that. I applaud him for saying that. I do, however, wish he would say a little bit about another reason. Okay, so it's true that it should never be considered and it should never be done because, you know, Religious freedom is paramount. It's also true, you can make pragmatic arguments that we can do everything to protect children and it doesn't involve having to break the seal of the confessional. But it, people need to understand, like there's a really good argument for why this has to have integrity because we are talking about the salvation of souls and people's eternal lives, okay? And so if you have someone who's like a murderer or someone who stole, or someone who victimized, you know, a poor widow, and he realizes that, oh my gosh, I have made a horrible mistake. I need to go to a priest and get in good with God. And that priest might say, absolve him of his sins, but he might say, you need to do something else, like your your penance is to, like, you know, whatever. Uh, try turn to rectify it in. if you can, or turn yeah. yourself in, or whatever. But yeah. if if people believe that the priest will break that confidence, break that seal, and go tell, then they're like, well, I don't want to confess my sin then because I, I, don't, ha I, I don't know it might get blasted around town. And that would dead. be... Confession, confession would is, be dead. That would be yeah, the termination yeah. of confession. It would be horrible. And so right. that's why it needs to be understood. Like Sometimes we look at things only in isolation. It's like, well, in this one case, wouldn't it be better if, he, if the priest just told the truth and let people know about this circumstance? Like, What's best is that people have the confidence to know that they can say anything and be freed and liberated of that evil sin that they have on their hearts so that they can spend eternity in heaven instead of damnation. And that does it for this week's Loopcast. So a uh, few things that really help us. If you're still listening at this point and you haven't subscribed, what are we doing? Please subscribe either whatever platform you're listening on, on YouTube. goes a long way. We'd love to be in your inbox every Thursday. Uh, also, leave us a review. Five stars go a long way. Leave us a personalized review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, reach out to us in the inbox. Our inbox is loopcast at catholicvote.org. Love talking to you guys. Really appreciate when you guys write in. And we'll see you next Thursday. Every Thursday, there will be a new episode. Be ready for it. And we'll talk to you then. God bless, guys.